All right, well, we're moving along in the book of Romans. Uh, if you're keeping track, this is sermon number 23, right? How about that? All right, that's pretty good. 23, we've only got a few more to go. And uh, it can be helpful to maybe have your Bible open, because it's always good to be able to flip back maybe and look at a little bit earlier prior to where we're looking at today. And um, today we're in Romans chapter 13, page, uh, verses 1 through 14. It's on page 948 in your pew Bible. And today we're, well, maybe we need a little refresher. Last week, what did we see? We saw that Paul calls us uh, as Christians that we are individuals, uh, and, and therefore we are to, as individuals, love our enemies. We're not to curse those who curse us, but we're to seek to bless them. In other words, retaliation is off the books. God will make sure that every sin is brought to justice. And this frees us to do what? To love everybody, including our enemies. And Paul's command to us then was what? To overcome evil with good. That's how we're to live our lives, to overcome evil with good. Today, Paul logically takes us into his teaching on civil government and society in general. See, if society and government seem to be at such odds with God, then how on earth are Christians to live out our calling, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God? How are we rightly to live within the state and within society? Once again, we'll need the renewal of our minds. Romans 13, verses 1 through 14. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then... Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. 
but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us. It is a challenge. It causes us to kind of rethink who we are as Christians and, and how we're to live in this world, uh, ways that honor you, um, ways that expand your, your kingdom, ways that um, bring victory over evil through good. Um, be with us as we ponder these thoughts. Help us to be transformed by them. We are a people who need the renewing of our minds, not just uh, yesterday, but even today and tomorrow as well. So we pray for your spirit. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, this is election year. And for some reason, every election year, there's some celebrities who say, if so-and-so gets elected, I'm moving out to Canada. For some reason, it's always Canada. I'm not quite sure why it's Canada. But it's not just celebrities, Christians too, and not just during election season. I've heard a number of Christians say how fed up they are with how unchristian like America is and has become. And they say that if they just get a few things in order, they're moving out of the country. Let me ask you, have you ever thought along those lines? Let me ask you this too. Are your thoughts biblical? I think you'll find Paul's words here this morning challenging. But you don't have to have your heart set on leaving America. Paul has a challenging word for all of us. See, our tendency as Christians is that if we, if we don't flee the ungodliness of our state, we tend to hunker down and hide out in what we can call holy huddles. The Christian can see the church's role, therefore, is to provide castle-like fortresses in which we can hide out from the evil world outside. The belief is that if we, that if we can just separate ourselves from all that is bad in the world, then we can live untainted lives, and then Jesus will be happy with us. In other words, Jesus' wish for his people is that we would hide out in holy huddles, cowering in fear of this evil world. Paul challenges us this morning. See, the Christian isn't to flee and live life in isolation, nor is the Christian to hunker down in holy huddles, nor are we to blend in with society as if we aren't Christians at all. Paul shows us that since we've come to place our trust and allegiance to King Jesus, something amazing has taken place. The Christian now has a new citizenship. Paul says elsewhere, he says these words, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is true of you if you are a Christian. You have dual citizenship. You belong as a citizen of, of some state here on earth, most likely America, although I think we got some people who have citizenship elsewhere, but you live here in this country. So you're a citizen here, but you're also a citizen of God's eternal kingdom. And so this morning, Paul wants us to see how Christians are to properly relate to both the state and the society that we live in. And as with our recent sermons, we're going to see that we need a renewing of our minds. 
We're going to divide our time into two areas. First, we're going to see how we are to relate to the state, and then we're to see how we are to relate to society. Well, first, Christian in the state. Paul says that Christians are to be subject to the state. Verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Uh, The word submit here means to place yourself underneath someone. We are to place ourselves underneath the governing bodies in the state in which we reside. Now, as soon as uh, Paul makes this blanket argument, we're looking for all sorts of caveats, all sorts of way out, right? But Paul literally says in the Greek, he says, every soul is to be subject, not just Christians, but all in society. Paul doesn't say, be subject to governing authorities, but only if they affirm Christian values. Some Christians want to take exceptions to Paul's words. They'll say, but but Paul, my kids can't pray in school anymore. Or Paul, they've taken down the Ten Commandments from the local courthouse. I think if Paul was here, I think, I can't speak for him, but I think he'd say something along the lines of, Give me a break. You have it so well here in America. And Paul would be right. Paul has written this letter to the church in Rome. That's why we call it the the book of Romans, right? It's written to the church in Rome. At that time, the government of the Roman Empire was no poster child of God-fearing government. In fact, by, by Paul's day, the emperor was seen to be divine. If you were a citizen of the Roman Empire, you had to worship the emperor. And understand this, Christians were a tiny minority. At the time of Paul's letter, Nero was the emperor. Yes, that Nero. He too is no poster child of saintly leadership. And the society itself was so corrupted Women were second-class citizens, and if you had a baby and was a daughter, there was a strong likelihood that, that your daughter was left to die in, in the gutter. That's the life, that's the society in which Paul is writing. So, if you think you can find exceptions to Paul's words here this morning, at least in America, I don't think you will. Understand this as well. Paul's teaching here isn't to discuss. He's not here teaching on on times when it is appropriate for Christians to resist authority. There are instances. I know of at least three, and here they are. Here they go. A Christian may resist authority if he or she is asked to violate a command of God or if he or she is asked to commit an immoral or unethical act or if he he or she is asked to go against his or her conscience. That's it. And once again, Paul's teaching here, he's not teaching us here to provide instances in which the Christians may resist. The the problem he addresses is whether people who belong to God's kingdom owe any allegiance to the earthly kingdom. Paul most assuredly says, yes, we are to be subject to governing authorities. Why? He gives at least two reasons. First, because it is right. Understand this. God is the one who has established civil authorities. It's his idea. It's his design. Therefore, it is right. Look at the rest of verse 1. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 
This partial verse tells us at least uh, tells us two things. One, that all civil governments that have existed uh, do so because God has authorized their existence. This doesn't mean that God approves of how they govern, just that he providentially has allowed every government to exist. And two, civil government itself is instituted by God. Just as marriage is an instituted, created by God as part of his design, so too is a civil government. It's an institution created for the purpose of establishing and maintaining law and order. Consider this. What if Adam and Eve never sinned? And what if they had children who never sinned and, and the world was populated and it grew and it grew? Even if there were no fall, there would be need for civil government. God is a God of order. And as the population would have grown, there would have been need for civil government. There would have been people in leadership roles. There would have been people who provide currency so we don't have to barter and trade all the time. You know, I got four fish. You got a dress for me? You know, no, there would be, there would be some sort of institution that brought that about. There would be officials who would oversee road construction. So even if there was no fall, there would be need for civil governments. And just as marriage was, is an institution even after the fall, so too civil governments are institutions of God even after the fall. The problem is, just like in marriage, our marriages have been affected by the fall, so too are civil governments. So we're to see earthly civil governments as having authority from God to govern. Paul then goes on to describe the consequences. I'll cover them really quickly. Verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Know this. Resisting civil authorities is tantamount, according to Paul, to resisting God himself. And those who resist rightly incur judgment. Talk about reorienting how we view the state. Doesn't this kind of challenge us in how we see the government that we live under? It also reveals how our minds need renewing as well. So we're to submit to governing authorities because it's right. The next reason is because it is wise. Governing authorities are part of God's design to approve good behavior and punish bad. Look at verses 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Paul says the role of good government is not to, not to punish good conduct, but to punish bad. If you're behaving good, guess what? You will have your ruler's approval. But if you're doing wrong, it's right for you to live in fear. Rulers have what's called the sword, that is, the right to punish wrongdoers. Remember last week I said that, you know, as Christians, as individuals, we do not have the right to retaliate. Rather, we are to respond to evil with good, that we are to love our enemies. Well, imagine if your neighbor takes a sledgehammer to your car and just totally beats, uh, beats it up, all right? knocks out all the windows. You have no right to go and retaliate in kind. As much as you'd like to, grab two sledgehammers and totally demolish their car, 
Um, we are to respond what? With love towards that person, as hard as that is. But you also have an opportunity to do what? Go to the civil authorities, to, to go call the police, have them file a report, uh, you know, have them uh, work it out in the court systems. That's government's role. Thankfully, the government exists for that purpose. God has instituted the state to oversee law and order. Did you notice also that Paul refers to these rulers as what? Three times in our passage, he calls them God's servants. Verse 4, at the beginning, he is God's servant for your good. At the end of verse 4, he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath. Then in verse 6, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. The word minister here in the Greek is a word that is used of priests who serve in the temple precincts. Kings, prime ministers, presidents might think that they're at the top of the heap, but in God's economy, they're simply his servants. However exalted they may be as citizens, the rulers are nothing more than lowly servants before God. We kind of tend to see them that way, don't we? We want to see our rulers lowly, but they do serve us. And therefore, we are to desire to serve them. Here's the reality. What Paul is trying to get across to us is, if we do not submit to them as God's servants, then we are, in effect, not submitting to God himself. Now, there's two reasons. Uh, These two reasons lead to a therefore. Verse 5, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. In light of all that Paul is saying, we need to be subjected to our, our rulers and authorities. One, uh, to avoid God's wrath. That makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, if we go and rob somebody, if we, don't, if we behave badly, we can be thrown in jail. We can be punished. We're to be in subjection to them. But the second reason is that faithful obedience leads to the tre- most treasured possession you can have as a Christian, a clear conscience. Christians obey authorities, not only because of what will happen to them if they do not, but because we desire a clear conscience. There's no greater enjoyment than to live life knowing that we've honored God, that we've followed his commands, that we've lived uh, as the Spirit has led us, and we have a clear conscience before God. Now Paul gives us practical application. It's interesting, Paul could probably focus on all kinds of other things to bring this to bear upon us. But he focuses on one thing to press deep into our soul, something that causes us also to reach deep into our pockets. Paul says, have a clear conscience before God, pay your darn taxes. (laughs) People didn't like paying taxes back in Jesus' day and Paul's day, and we don't like paying taxes today, do we? You know, I have Christian friends who brag about the fact that they get paid off the books. I make 20 bucks an hour, but it's more like 30 since it's cash. I know Christian businessmen who pay their employees cash so they can save on their taxes. Our pool guy, I'll open and close your pool, Mark, for this price. Oh, but if you pay cash, I'll give you a discount. We write checks. We pay the full price. Do you own a business where you pay your employees in cash so that's off the books? Do you take cash payments for services and do not report the income? 
Think this through. You're stealing from everybody here in this room. How's that? University professors Sabula and Feiji published a study four years ago in which they estimated 18 to 19% of income in America isn't reported. And therefore, the underground economy in the U.S. is at $2 trillion. The lost tax revenue, you guys ready? $500 billion. Let me ask you, if everyone in America reported their income, would we not all have lower taxes to pay? What does this mean for you? Submit to the authorities. Pay your taxes. If your boss have you off the books, tell him you want to be on the books. If he won't put you on the books, keep track of what he pays you. Report that on your income taxes. Yeah, you're going to have to pay more taxes, which means you're going to have to set aside money for your quarterly payments. But you do what is right. Pay your taxes. That's tough application, isn't it? Well, that's the Christian's relationship with the state as we see it in our passage. Now for our relationship with the society around us. Todd Morton and I met in the weirdest of ways. I moved to a new neighborhood. And some of my friends said, Mark, you need to fight Todd Morton. Now, I'd never met Todd, and I to this day can't remember why I was supposed to fight Todd. But one day our, our paths crossed crossed uh, behind the Hill Trail tennis courts, and we fought. Todd beat me up. (laughs) We became best of friends. Skateboarded, played tennis, listened to records. This past week, Todd experienced chest pains. After heeding the advice of a friend, he went to see a doctor. He had a stress test done. Turns out he had severe blockage of his 50-year-old heart. Surgery saved his life. He will live on. I love Todd. I hope he has many years ahead of him. I have no reason to think he won't. But that incident, incident as it related to me, caused me to think, I have just a few decades left at best. How will I make the most of them? I don't want to be sitting in my wheelchair, one of those electric things that you can mobility cars. I'll be sitting there drinking my lemonade thinking I should have heeded Paul's call. How about you? What's Paul's call in verse 8 to 14? His call is this. Love and live as if you're going to see your Savior tomorrow because you may. First, let's look at our call to love like Christ. Christian, know this. If you get which is one thing out of this sermon, know this. You have a great and high calling. You've been called by God to be an agent of change on this earth. You've been called by God to overcome evil with good. If you're looking to be a part of something great, you already are. <laughs> We're not to retaliate to bless, but to bless those who persecute us. And you know what? This doesn't take place when we get fed up with our society and leave America 
to live in isolation. This doesn't happen when Christians collectively think, oh, woe is me, and start hiding out in holy huddles. Remember, Jesus said we're to be salt and light in our communities. We're to be like leaven or yeast that is spread out into the dough so that it rises and has a positive effect. In verses 8 through 10, Paul speaks of loving people in our society like Christ. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul is saying, on the one hand, we shouldn't leave any debts unpaid. So pay off your debts, right? Or at least get a payment plan going. We should settle our debts promptly. But more than this, Paul is exhorting us to have no other debts other than what? Loving others. And the actual Greek tense of the word, of the verb here, to love, is, is actually um, means that it's an ongoing debt. It's like you're never going to get out of this debt of loving others. Paul's encouraging us that, that if we are to overcome evil with good, then we are to love in such a way that changes our culture. Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. By how much you hide away in your churches. No. By how much you flee to foreign countries to avoid the, avoid the tough life in America. No. You will, people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, when you love like Christ, you don't have to worry about the Ten Commandments. That's what he's saying. One who loves does not commit adultery, but cherishes his, his wife, or she cherishes her husband. The one who loves does not commit murder, nor even have a, a thought of evil towards anyone. The one who does not steal, the one who loves does not steal, but rather finds people in need and gives to them. The one who loves does not covet. Why? Because he knows his Father in heaven will provide for all of his needs. And so the one, so the, so for us to love means that if we, if we pursue this, if we see that we have a debt to love others, we are going to fulfill the commands of God. We don't have to worry about all, what not to do. If we love and we love well, we will fulfill the commands. Those are Jesus' words that Paul is speaking of. Love does no, Wrong to a neighbor. We fulfill the law by, by loving others. So let me ask you, those who want to run away, those who want to hide in holy huddles, do you really think that's what Jesus has in mind for his followers? Not even close. Jesus hung out with pimps and prostitutes, all kinds of sinners and corrupt tax collectors, it was the self-righteous Pharisees who hung out in the holy huddles. They held contempt for Jesus, for how he loved sinful, messed up, outcast people. They verbally condemned sinners. But Jesus told the thief on the cross that there was room for him in heaven that very day. Let me ask you, do you love this way? 
My friends, let me tell you, I'm just as disturbed by how godless our, our culture is today. But self-righteous indignation will save no souls. Your love for the godless, that's where it all begins. We are to live within our, within our society with Christ-like love for others. That's what Paul exhorts us, to love like Christ. Then he exhorts us to live like Christ. Verse 11 through 14. Here he reminds us that Jesus could return any day. Now, it also could be a hundred years or a thousand years. Every generation of Christian always thought that it was their generation in which Jesus was returning. So we wouldn't be any different than that. But it is true. It very well could be tomorrow. So the hour is late. Let's live every minute like it matters. Look at verse 11. Besides this, you know that you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and, and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But, check this out, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul wants us to open our eyes so that we have a, a proper sense of perspective. We need to remember that we're citizens, right now we're citizens of, of both uh, kingdoms. We're citizens of the state and of Christ's kingdom. But also time is running short. Christian, you only have a few short years left for you to overcome evil with good. Only a few short years to love the unlovely, to tell your lost neighbors about God's love for sinners and their need of repentance. Yes, only a few years left to love like Jesus and to live like Jesus. Just a few years left before we get to Live with Jesus forever. You know, if there's many Christians who hide out from society and live in holy huddles, there's just as many, perhaps more, who live like chameleons. You can't tell them any different from their unbelieving neighbors. Their bucket lists are just as self-serving as their unbelieving neighbors. They too chase after money, they cuss, they sleep around, they gossip and slander. Paul says to Christians everywhere and to us here in this room, he says, wake up. Verse 11, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Paul says that for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. How true is that? Yeah. If you believe 10 years ago, you're now 10 years closer to the salvation of the Lord. And of course, if you're a Christian, you have salvation. But salvation in the Bible is sometimes spoken of as a past event, right? Uh, also a present, ongoing reality. But in this case, we see salvation as something that is yet fully to come. If you're a Christian, that salvation has come to you, but it's not yet in its full, um, full, um, full sense of it. Paul says we are to wake up. He also wants us to look at our lives this way. The darkness of sin and corruption, it's in your past. It's in your rearview mirror, right? 
That old you is gone. Wave bye-bye. I realized as I was preparing this, in like five, ten years, people won't even know what a rearview mirror is anymore. you got these self-driving cars, right? So can't use that analogy, but for a day it's safe. Uh, it, your old life, that old way of darkness is in your rearview mirror. Now the day of light is at hand. The light of Christ has penetrated into this dark world. His return could be any day. It doesn't have to be in your lifetime, but it could. It could be tomorrow. Because of this, Christians are not to live as if we're still living in the night. We're not to walk in darkness. When it comes to sin and immorality, there's to be a night and day difference between you and the sinfulness of the society around you. You're not to be a chameleon that blends in. Paul ends verse 12 with a purpose clause. So then... Because you belong to Christ, and because this day of salvation is closer than it ever was before, what are we to do? So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Paul is saying because salvation is near, we are to live as if it is already here. We are to live in the light and not in the darkness. He then gives three couplets of life that's lived in the darkness The first are uh, bedroom sins, sexual immorality, and excuse me, the first are party sins, orgies and drunkenness. Orgies here aren't sexual orgies, this is just drunken orgies. If you knew Christ was returning tomorrow, would you get drunk and just do stupid stuff? Next are bedroom sins, sexual immorality and sensuality. If you knew Christ were coming tomorrow, would you be sexually immoral? Would you sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend, download porn, whatever it is? Would you? Last are social sins, quarreling and jealousy. Paul probably includes these seemingly innocuous sins because most of us can say, well, I don't have a problem with the party sins or bedroom sins, right? So I'm off the hook. But no, he puts down here um, quarreling and jealousy. Why? Because we are all prone to quarreling and jealousies, are we not? If you knew Christ was returning tomorrow, would you go out of your way to make that biting remark that gets you into an argument? Instead of walking in darkness, what is it that Paul exhorts us to do? Verse 12, put on the armor of light. And in verse 14 he writes, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The imagery is is that of taking off dirty, soiled clothes and putting on clean ones. And it's true. What you wear changes how you act. Have you ever noticed that when you put on a nice suit or a nice dress, you act more proper or refined? I know that when I put on a tuxedo, I act like, well, Someone who's wearing a tuxedo. I don't grab a skateboard and try to ride around, right? Paul is saying that every Christian is given given the righteousness of Christ to wear. May we put it on. May we walk in it. Do you remember our motto here at Grace Church? Alvaro, do you remember it? Alive in Christ. There we are. Good to have you back. All right. Alive in Christ. Christian, you have died with Christ when he died on the cross. 
Christian, you have risen to new life in Christ when he rose from death on your behalf. And Christian, you have been given all of Christ's goodness. 100% of his righteousness has been placed to your account. And one day you will no longer be a citizen of an earthly government. On that day, you will be fully like Christ. Imagine that. Paul is telling us to put on what is already ours. The holy and good and righteous life of Christ is yours by faith in him. Put it on. Proudly wear it. It's yours. You are alive in Christ. You've been brought into his light. Therefore, live in Christ and not in darkness. See, our relationship with society isn't to be chameleon-like. We, are to, we aren't to live without any sort of distinction. And guess what? If you put on Christ and you wear Christ in your daily life, there is no way that you will stick out, um, will not stick out in our society. You will stick out, but for all the right reasons. You will stick out because you love like Christ. You will stick out because you live in holiness like Christ. Where does this take you this morning? Maybe you've yet to trust in Christ. And maybe like many Americans, you see the state as your savior. I hope you see that no civil government in all recorded history has ever been a savior to its citizens. But God has given us a king who has a kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he invites you to pledge your allegiance to his king that you may join his kingdom. There are people sitting around you right now who belong to his kingdom. You too can be a part of that kingdom. Acknowledge your need for it. Acknowledge your need of a savior. Trust in him. Turn to him. And he will bring you into his kingdom. And he will return for you one day. So you can dwell in his kingdom forever. For the rest of us, may we neither run from society, nor may we hide out in holy huddles, nor may we blend in like chameleons. But let us instead put on Christ. May we have a biblical view of our state and of our society. May we wake from our sleep, for salvation is closer than we think. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us. It is very challenging. Um, we like to think of our lives as our lives, to be lived however we like. We're thankful that you've called us out of darkness into light, that we are now citizens in your kingdom, and you rule over all things, including civil governments. <laughs> and therefore, we thank you for that, for the government we have. We pray for our leaders. We pray that they would... Um, know you, but even if they don't, that they would honor you with how they rule and govern. 
Help us to be people who live well in our society. Maybe not hide out, maybe not run, but maybe love people like Jesus and live like Jesus so that, so that we may overcome evil with good, we pray. Amen.